Hello there. You are listening to At The Well, the weekly Bible podcast that helps you see yourself in the stories of Scripture. I'm Jarrell. I'm Charles. And I'm Eli. And we are delighted that you're joining us for this week's discussion. Gentlemen, we are we are on the beginning of the NFL playoffs. And sadly, and spray, I'm going to rip the bandaid off now in case you're unaware, those of you that are watching this after the Super Bowl, the Detroit Lions are not in the playoffs. Oh. Uh. <laughs> They are not. And I realized what I was saying. <laughs> As I was saying, I was like, oh, this isn't going to come out until mid February. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> let's, let's segment back into our actual show. <laughs> and the questions of the week segment. If you'd like to submit a question for us to answer during the segment, you can email us at threeguysatthewell at gmail.com. That's number three, then guys at the well, all one word and lowercase at gmail.com. This week's question comes from our friend Orlando, but he asks us, how do we think Christian relationships will change post-COVID? I think they will change. I think they've already changed in COVID. And I think that change is going to carry over in that we are going to have to start being very intentional about how we meet. And I don't necessarily think that means always erring on the side of precaution, but sometimes discerning like, okay, which calculated risks do we take? Um, I think a lot of times people think the, the, the option is to check out. Um, okay, we're stuck in our homes, we're going to do things. And that, that, that means that I can only go on Zoom. I can't necessarily care for somebody. I can't do X, Y, and Z. But there are still ministries to be had. People still need help. Um, like there is still a way to live life. And I think that disciples of Jesus need to, while like while wearing a mask and while being protected, like also need to see like, okay, what is a ministry that I can do now? People need to be, people still need to be loved just because God allowed COVID to take place. Doesn't mean that I can check out of my discipleship. Yeah, no, well said. I think the intentionality piece is huge. And it's not to say, you know, throw caution to the wind and just do whatever. But it is to say, like, you know, Peter commends the disciples to, like, be prepared in season and out of season, like giving a reason for, like, their hope. And I think there's an intentionality piece that we've all been forced to grow in during the pandemic of how do we connect to people when we can't connect um, face-to-face in the way that we normally would. And so I think that hopefully it expands mission opportunities and expands like the creativity in which we think about mission to maybe <clears throat> now that we're all more Zoom and video chat literate to increase our reach uh, with the gospel by doing things that allow us to, while we continue to go through the pandemic itself, but also just after, whenever things are less uh, perilous, to expand the reach of the gospel using some of the tools that we've had and kind of build in, build that intentionality we've been forced to develop over the past almost year into ministry that is yeah, more far reaching. I think it, it's, it poses a, again, a, like you said, a responsibility for us to love our neighbor, wear a mask and take precautions, but also a responsibility to use this to inform whatever ministry looks like afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I and I think simply I I think we're going to appreciate the times that we can be together more. Uh I think it for myself I'm go I took for granted 
just being able to to be with brothers and sisters and to not be able to record this with you guys in person uh to spend any time with you guys over the past couple of months um or with our friends like or to meet uh, in places of worship at some for some people it's just been hard um and i took that for granted and i think it's a sobering reality where like that can be taken away and so i don't think we're going to be taken we're i don't think we're going to take for granted anymore, the opportunity uh, and the times when we can be in person um, and and really live out in-person fellowship with one another. Amen, well said. Yeah, I think we'll all appreciate things that we're not even, we don't even know what they're gonna be when we're able to emerge from our homes. So let's transition into today's passage again. This is the second episode in our season, What the Parable, where we're going over some of the parables during Jesus's ministry to see what we can learn from them. This week's passage comes from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. If you have your Bible and you aren't driving, start turning there now while I set the scene. The whole of Matthew 18 focuses on heaven, sin, and the persistent love of Jesus Christ. At the end of this chapter, Jesus ties all of these themes together in the parable of the unforgiving servant, a plea for his disciples to let his love for them inform how they relate to others. He who has ears, let him hear. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him in prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father will do also, will do also do if each of you from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Gentlemen, what can we learn from this parable? Okay, so I'm I'm curious. So this first servant, what was what to what end did he harass the other his fellow servant? Like you no longer owe anything. So what were you getting back what you owed do for you? If you're debt free, what do you need to accomplish anymore? The whole reason you're a servant in the first place in the first place was to close the gap in your debt. So like I'm even confused as to what as to what end. Um like what was, what was he trying to achieve? 
that's a real question for both of you. Maybe you have some greater insight than I do. When I, when I read this, <clears throat> I read that action as like someone who lords his authority over mm -hmm. other people. Yeah. So it's not um, about the cash. It's a, it's, literally it's not about the cash. Part, yeah. It's about the authority that he has over other people. Um, that's how I, I read into his, the characterization of that action. Yeah. 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 Nice. Okay. Thank you. Amy, I think it speaks more to a state of heart and mind than it does like a physical, uh, tangible need. So, uh, I think it's important for some context, and uh, it was important for me as I, I prayed and, and meditated on this, um, and doing so by reading Bible commentary and, and trying to understand the passage. But um, I think it, it, I think we've heard this, but we've all heard this before. Probably all our listeners might have heard this before. But um, in New Testament times, what's referred to as a talent was equal to twenty up to twenty years worth of wages. Um, and so to, in today's terms, um, that's equivalent to, depending on how you count it, four to six billion with a B dollars. Um, so, and again, it's important to realize that Jesus is exaggerating the figure here. He's exact, the story is emphasizing something um, about, uh, again, we talked about this in the last um, episode, the parable is supposed to to try reflect something about the truth of, of Christ. And in over-exaggerating the debt that was owed, Jesus is um, getting across and emphasizing the debt that we owe. It's an incalculable debt to God because of the sin that we commit against him. It's something that we never, ever, it's impossible to, uh, to pay back to a holy and righteous God. Um, and we know it's impossible to pay back because of what it says in Romans 6, uh, 23, the first half of it, where it says, for the wages of sin is death. We can't pay back uh, because the, the punishment is death. Um, but on the flip side, the parable also highlights uh, God's incalculable mercy um, in withholding judgment. Um, for the in this in the parable the the guy forgiving the debt and for us in the person of Christ him um, paying the debt that we owe to to God by uh, dying on the cross for our sins and that immeasurable gift of salvation um, through and eternal life through Jesus Christ uh, and that same verse the second half of that same verse from Romans six twenty three says. Um, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's something here reflecting about the, the immeasurable uh, debt that we owe to a holy and righteous God that we cannot pay, cannot pay back and can only be forgiven and is forgiven um, by God through Jesus Christ. And, and it's a, a gift that we receive, the gift of eternal life that we ourselves could not obtain. Amen. Yeah, there's there's a call here. I need to oh, I need to find it. Should have looked it up ahead of time. There's a verse where, um, basically, is this idea of uh, remembering how much we've been forgiven. Um, and like, there's a call. I believe it's in one of the Gospels. I'll have to look it up. But <laughs> um, there's a verse that's just to the effect of 
like remembering how much we've been forgiven when we uh, encounter other people in the sense that like, you know, Jesus, Jesus doesn't want our sin to be something that we wallow in or that we don't experience freedom from. He doesn't want it to be something that is always in front of us and kind of keeping us low. But in this case, he is saying, you know, in dealing with people around you, like just remember how, remember how much you have been forgiven. Uh, It's he who has been forgiven much, forgives much. And See who forgives little. Forg- it's something like that. Jesus definitely said it. It's definitely in the Gospels. I still need to look it up. I'm sorry, it just came to me. But he's been forgiven much, also forgives much. And this idea that, like, when we remember uh, our offense to God, we can use that to inform how we deal with offenses with other people. And it's really interesting, like, Charles, you're talking about the context of this. I, in Matthew 18, like, and I mentioned it in the, the setting, the scene. This entire chapter is about like sin and what happens when people sin. And so it talks about Jesus talked about like what happens if you cause um, uh, people to stumble. And this is like, uh, you know, pluck out your eye and remove it from you. He then goes into the parable, like the parable of the lost sheep and Jesus seeking after the one. He then gives uh, an outline of what do you do when someone sins against you in the church? And then it all culminates in this in the in the parable of the unforgiving servant and just kind of this context to remember consistently like who we are and who we've been. Like we talked in the last episode about um the times when the word maybe doesn't fall on fertile soil. And I think here Jesus is saying, you know, remember the times uh that you've been a wandering sheep. Uh, remember the times like maybe your right eye or your right hand has caused you to sin and remember that I have like taken the penalty for that. And let that take root in you to inform how you deal with people when you are also sinned against. Because um, to Charles's point, they're not the same. Um, and there, there's more that I, I want to say about that a bit later. But I think that, yeah, that the key point here is like sin shouldn't keep you down, but it shouldn't inform how you live. And it shouldn't inform how you deal with the sins of others. I think that's ultimately the really revolutionary part about this parable um, is that it's not something to compartmentalize like, Oh God forgave you. Oh, good for God. Like I can, but I'm also in charge of my own decisions. God's like, no, actually I'm going to hold you. Like you, I want you to behave like me. Like, and that's the point. That's the ultimate purpose of being God's image bearers. We're supposed to reflect his image, not some weird broken or like deviant form of our own form of justice. Like it's not about, and that's, and of course that's the, that's the rub, right? Like that's hard to do to, constantly submit like lord i have this urge to to do justice on my own terms god's like yeah but i'm justice you don't you don't even know that well enough to enact that um i am mercy like you are supposed to be learning and reflecting me so it's not just like oh god did this really nice thing for me i'm glad that i was a recipient of that and i think maybe okay if we're turning these these illustrated characters into real people while I do think he, while I do think the servant um, who was unfair and unjust is an a-hole, I also think, um, I also relate to that. I also relate to like de- trying to determine things on my own sense of morality rather than relying on God's and learning from him and like in every moment submitting to God, like, okay, I'm angry, 
but that doesn't give me the right to act in a way to act as if I sit on your throne, God. Yeah. To that point, I was thinking about how this is really a call to, to be an image bearer, to, to do to other people what Christ has done to us and, and how that is clearly not the case in this parable. This, this man is forgiven a debt that he cannot pay back. And he encounters someone who owes him, I, I don't know the math, but it's something like 300 times less or, or more, you know, it's like, it's way less than, than what he has just been forgiven. And he can't extend the same mercy. Um, and again, in my characterization, it's probably because he likes lording authority over people. Um, but there is something about, I, I thought about like putting myself in, in the position of the man who's who, whose debt's forgiven, which I am that man because Christ died for my sins, right? And I thought that's that's transformative. That's life-changing. If you actually are not impacted and transformed by that, there's something wrong. Um, and that's what the part I think of what's trying to get come through in this parable is that like the debt that has been paid uh, by Christ is transformative. There's only one thing to do in response to that. And, and that's to, to have a transformed life, you know, like to have that debt paid. I just think about like the thousands of dollars that we owe in student debt was suddenly wiped away. That would be life-changing for us, for, for Chelsea and I. Um, and, and that's just like fickle money. And, and we're talking about eternal life. Um, and so there's, there's a call here, as you eloquently put, Eli, to, uh, to do the same. It's if we're transform, part of that transformed life is to be like the one who gave us the transformed life to extend mercy, um, to to withhold judgment because that's not our place. Um, we don't sit on the throne. <laughs> I need a reminder every once in a while. I'll sit on the throne of judgment, <laughs> um, but I'm called to give mercy like I have received mercy. Amen. the The idea of it being a transformative thing, I, I really like that, Charles. It's like, yeah, like we. Each of us, whether it's student loan debt or just like uh, just bills in general, if we like suddenly had a lot of that wiped out in a very practical sense, it would change so many things about our lives and like how much more um, the gift of eternal life that we receive from Jesus Christ. Uh, absolutely. I So I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction because this is something I've been thinking about and kind of like processing. I'm wondering, I want you guys to kind of weigh in. So everything we just talked about in being people who learn to forgive because of how much we've been forgiven and allow that to inform and transform the way that we deal um, with others when we uh, have grievance or have been sinned against. Absolutely. Um, but there's something that I, I've noticed sometimes even within church, and that's this very cheap view of reconciliation and this very cheap view of what it means to like, not just, forgive someone, but what it means to actually deal with conflict when someone has been sinned against. And so I was reading this and I was like, absolutely. I relate too much to the unmerciful servant sometimes. And I want to grow in like remembering who Jesus is and the way he canceled the debt for me to help me to forgive. But I think oftentimes in the church, the way that we deal with conflict and sometimes genuine hurt is just to say to the hurt party, well, you just got to forgive them and that's it. And that all like that is not 
at least from what I can see, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, that is not the intention of this passage. And kind of going about this idea of forgiveness is like a sin has happened. Wrong has been committed against a brother or sister in Christ. So the person who has been wrong just needs to forgive. End of story is just not it. And it's not just because like I've got like scores I want to settle, but that consistently just isn't who Jesus is. And when we do that, because we're afraid of conflict or afraid of like calling out evil when we see it, we actually cheapen what forgiveness is, actually cheapen what grace is. Like there's this verse in Galatians 5 where a lot of it is like contrasting the works of the flesh from the works of the spirit. Um, And in verse 11, Paul says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so there's kind of this push of like, yeah, we've we've been forgiven, but like, let's not just say, oh, Jesus, you forgave me. That's great. I'm not actually going to work on the sin itself. Like we are new creations of Jesus Christ. But every day he calls us to bring things to his feet and to grow in him. So I don't know. I, it's an unformed tangent slash rant that I wanted to bring up. Because I think sometimes the church does this very poorly and leaves a lot of people broken in a way that is not God honoring. I could not agree more with you, Jarrell. Like, mercy does not neuter justice. And I get really tired of the onus. Like, from childhood, it's always it always seems like the onus is on the offended to behave in a particular way. But this parable particularly, um, it, it gives the image of servants. Like, one servant treated an equal servant this way lorded as charles put it like lorded whatever authority they had because of a debt over them despite the fact that they were both servants like when it comes to brothers and sisters in christ it's not just the offended party that should behave in a particular way it's also the offender that is called to change and reconcile their actions because the fact that you've wronged someone that you've sinned yes you should be forgiven. Praise God, that needs to be worked on. Like, that's a good thing. Forgiveness and mercy are excellent. Praise God for it. Um, But you also don't want to continue on. Like, James 3.18, like, blesses peacemakers who sow in peace. Like, we are are told by, by Paul, like, in as much as it is up to you, live in peace with those around you. Like peace and and unity are impossible if only one side is willing to own up to sin. Like when Jesus suffers and is resurrected, like or even like just like us in our just like us series. When when he told the woman who was about to be stoned, who was caught in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. Like, she still sinned against God, but he told her to go and sin no more. Like, we're still called to this change, every one of us. Um, and so I don't think offenders get more grace than the offended. I think both of them receive grace. Yeah, absolutely. And there's like, in the idea of they're both servants and like the passage in Galatians is like in freedom, serve one another. And actually trying to right a wrong is a form of service. And I think there needs to be this like clear, especially within the church, like it's not about just saying, oh, well, that was really uncomfortable. Just say you're sorry and move on. Right. Because that like that leads to so much resentment and so much just like lack of trust within the church. Like, 
we had talked, I think Charles, you were talking about uh, unity a while ago in our last season and how among siblings and how like genuine unity among siblings is hard won. It's not just, oh, forgive each other. You all love each other. Great. It's like, no, you did something wrong. Like it was like in it was with David, I think, uh, in the episode we did uh, called Shattered, where he didn't actually deal with the wrong that was committed against his family, and it tore the entire family apart. And it's like he could have said like, oh, he he could have maybe forgiven um, Amnon in his heart, but everyone else suffered. Like everyone else suffered because there wasn't this call to, sure, forgiveness is a good thing, there, but there. There's also justice. There is also um, seeking to make right as a point of service. Like Jesus in dying for us, paid the price for us. He acknowledged that like we were expensive, but he was willing to do what he had to, to actually make us right with God. Not just to say, well, you know, some bad things happened and you didn't know any better. So it's all good. He was like, no, there's a the debt to be paid and I'm willing to pay it. But live in light of that. And I think that, yeah, we as disciples need to be very aware that we are not just saying offending parties, just expect forgiveness and then don't change. Like offending parties, you need to right wrongs and make every effort to do so because to not do so is not in line with the heart of Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think there's, there's like um, a sense of humility there. There's, there's humility needed in both parties, the offended and the offender in order to recognize that it's more than just the sentiment of forgiveness. Um, that's not what we're called to. Um, we're called to reconciliation. And, I, and I'm going to botch this, but reconciliation, it, the definition is not like offering forgiveness. It's when two divided parties are made whole. And so that means that there's work that's involved with for both parties. Um, and, and more than often, I'm sure it means that there's some humility involved of for the offender recognizing that I have done something that has hurt another brother or sister. And for um, the person who was offended, probably having a humility to, um, to address the situation um, with peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, self-control, and not out of anger um, and cause more strife and division. So there, I think there's something, there's absolutely something there um, that I've, I've heard before of like, it's, it's not, it's not just about a sentiment. It's also about, there's, there's an action. It's there, the word that we're looking for is like re reconciliation. And, and, and that's an active word there that involves action on both parties and not just a statement or sentiment on one uh, end of the spectrum. I love that, Charles. That's so good. I, you said two divided parties are now made whole. I haven't heard that. You didn't botch it at all. I loved that. <laughs> um, I think along those lines of God, like protecting what reconciliation is, you beautifully, you gave this definition for it. Um, he also holds accountable the offending party. Like in the parable, like the servants all owed the master a debt in this parable. And he dealt with them, even, even the way in which he called them to uh, repay their debt was servitude to him. Like that's that that wasn't done in in an evil or cruel way. But then this servant puts his hands on the other servant who had a debt to him. And so then the master's re response to his unjust, wrathful, um, like lunging at this other servant is to then torture him. Like, 
when I said mercy doesn't neuter justice, what I was hopefully trying to get to the point of like, God is not, God will not be mocked if you uh, try and push this half-baked idea of what it means to, as Charles eloquently put it, like unify with somebody, um, what, what it means to like be brought back into good order and a good relationship with someone. Like if you're trying to use forgiveness as, as a smokescreen for abuse, um, then God will get after you. And whether it's discipline on this side of eternity or justice on the other side of it, like you have to understand God is glorified in both his mercy and in his justice. And he is worthy of being loved, but he is also worthy of being reverently feared. Like God takes seriously sin and it's he's not using punishment as a threat. He is using love as as a as a as a like a, a healing balm to draw us to him, but he's also making sure that we know. I'm not going to let you get away with abusing my, with like mistreating my tenants as a way of taking advantage of people, my other image bearers. Eli, Eli stays preaching this season. But no, like that, like that's exactly it. Like there, and I think it, it's so important to say, cause like, like we've had conversations off air about like responding to parables like this. And like, we know people who have been deeply hurt um, by people both outside the church and within the church and where like genuine reconciliation, like you said, Charles, was not reached. And it was kind of the onus is on you to forgive. It's not on the offending party or parties to actually acknowledge what they did. And it like that drives me up a wall because it pushes so many people so far away from who God is, because in our brokenness as disciples, we don't sometimes don't represent that well. And so I think like for what it's worth for our listenership, I think it's worth like making that abundantly clear that God is not, he is not mocked by a fake or cheap, like I love that, like a cheap sense of what unity is, or what forgiveness is, or what reconciliation is. And so like to kind of to tie that up, before he gets to this parable, actually, Jesus talks about um, specifically this dealing with sin in the church. And there's two verses, uh, well, three verses, sorry, uh, 15 through 17. Where he says, if your brother or sister sins, uh, point go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And that day being like the kind of go-to of like, these are who we see as sinners. Um very, like kind of the template for what that would be. And so there's this, not only this um, idea of dealing with sin that preserves the dignity of the person and the privacy of the person, but also recognizes unrepentant sin that you refuse to acknowledge is a serious, serious thing. And it's like, and if they won't listen to you, get a few other people whose testimony is good. If they will not listen to them, you need the church. Like this idea that says like there's an escalating amount of like consequence and people who are like speaking into this, not to put everybody's business in the street, but because if you're not acknowledging like a role you played in sin, that hurts the entire body. That hurts everybody. And that needs to be held to account. And then getting to the point where if you still will not acknowledge it, well then kind of the sense that, well, then you aren't actually within the body of Christ and the church in a sense like turns away from you because you aren't seeking to be united with the body in a way that honors God and acknowledges the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so this is not us to say like, 
start ignoring people. But yeah, God takes this seriously, not just to say, oh, go and forgive, but to be people who actively seek out reconciliation and are willing to do the work to do so. And not doing that is something that God has told his people, turn away from that, because that is not of me. Well, well, that's a word. It's in there. <laughs> and on that fiery note, that is all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can check us out at atthewell.podbean.com. We upload new episodes every Monday on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can also connect with us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Three Guys at the Well. And if you want even more content, content and would like to help us this podcast grow, consider becoming a patron and head over to patreon.com forward slash at the well for exciting new bonus content like our current hope series. We'll talk to you next week here at the well.